Christmas Eve 1968 is when that video clip was aired for the first time, and it's the closing part of the fourth of six total broadcasts that would happen from the Apollo 8 mission. This mission that they were on was to fly within 70 miles of the surface of the moon, and they're going to see the dark side of the moon for the first time with human eyes. And they were continuing to plan for the Apollo mission that would eventually make the famous moon landing. I thought it would be a unique opportunity to have three astronauts share the reading of the majority of today's passage. So thanks for uh, indulging my inner young astronaut nerd. What you just heard were astronauts Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman. The first humans to travel the 238,900 miles to the moon at this point, And they're reciting... Verses 1 through 10 from Genesis 1, the creation narrative they're reciting from the King James Bible. History.com summarizes the three astronauts' thoughts that were shared throughout that broadcast on Christmas Eve in this way. As Apollo 8 rounded the moon for a ninth time, Borman got the primetime Christmas Eve broadcast started by saying the crew would take the audience with it through a lunar sunset. He described the moon as vast, lonely, forbidding. And he added that it would not appear to be a very inviting place to live or to work. Lovell chimed in that the vast loneliness of the moon is awe-inspiring, and it makes you realize just what it is that we have here on the good earth. Anders, meanwhile, declared himself quite impressed with lunar sunrises and sunsets. It's estimated that that night, the global television audience was over one billion people. 
It set records that would stand until the mid-80s, meaning that one in four people around the globe at that time tuned in to see this broadcast. And just like these astronauts had a specific audience for their broadcast, Moses had a specific audience in mind for his writings in the book of Genesis. Biblical dating points that it's the late 15th century B.C., that Genesis is written. That would have been at the time or following the Exodus when Israel has wandered now into the wilderness as we know it historically. Here you have God's people dreaming of a promised land and they would naturally ask some questions about, from, uh, from Abraham about the patriarchs and about their ultimate origins and they're asking Moses these questions about Abraham and those patriarchs. See, God met Moses in that moment with his word. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving Moses not only Genesis, but what we call the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Bible. So we should understand that uh, Israel had just escaped this oppressive land in Egypt. And they're asking questions about their origins. They're asking questions about where they've come from and what they've been created for. Because they've been in an oppressive land where they've been taught in Egypt uh, polytheism. That simply means this, that there are many gods who have many different functions. That Egypt's temples that they had been a part of building and the pyramids that had solar and lunar gods. And in Egypt, there were so many different pagan mythologies that had opposed Israel's what we call monotheism or one true God. And Moses begins by revealing that there is one God who has many persons. In Egypt, the nation of Israel was taught elaborate myths of love affairs and reproduction amongst the gods. They were taught of these warfare-making gods out of the heavens and earth. That that's what it was born from was conflict. The priests annually that were in Egypt would mime the myths that were that were being taught in some way that they were trying to react, reenact them in a way that would recreate life by reenacting what they believed about these kind of polytheistic beings. And there was an effect that it had on the people of Israel because some had begun to adopt to this kind of lavish understanding or these lavish liturgies of the Nile. They had begun to buy into that. And in Genesis, Moses is going to take these things on directly. He's going to take these these, uh, wrong understandings about who God is and about how the world was created. He's going to take them on directly. Moses begins with a radical and sweeping affirmation of one true God. So that's where we begin our series in Genesis today. You know, it may be easy to think that the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll talk about it in this way, that the Sermon on the Mount was one of the first radical upside down, or as we'll call it at times, a right side up understanding of the message of the kingdom of God here on earth. But I think Moses actually might have that down. God's word, as inspired through the Holy Spirit, has always had and always will have a radical, transformative effect by bringing a different message than that of the world. And Genesis is no different. Now you may ask the question this morning, why Origins for the series title? Uh, I too love Webster's 1828. I know there's been much controversy over that by one of our elders. 
uh, but Danny shall go unnamed. (laughs) Here's what Webster's 1828 has to say about the word origin. It is the first existence or beginning of anything as the origin of Rome. In history, it's necessary, if uh, practicable, to trace all events to their origin. Second meaning, fountain or source, cause, that from which anything primarily proceeds, that which gives existence or beginning. As we were gathered earlier this week as elders uh, going through kind of a a number of things related to the church, talking about this series, uh, just updating one another on kind of what's on our heart for this series, one of the things that we were primarily talking about and praying about as elders here in the church is this, that we would see in Genesis the origins of grace. The book of Genesis is about the grace of God. It would be easy to get caught up in, in the science or the historical narrative. and all. There's some crazy stuff in the book of Genesis, to be sure. It can be difficult to understand and comprehend and, and to explain even. And we've been working for a while to even equip our community group leaders for some of the discussions that will be coming in the days ahead. We're going to be looking at the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God even as we were talking about and praying to in worship. But make no mistake... The book of Genesis is about the origins of grace. As we saw in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle Paul sums up this major theme in Genesis where he says this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Genesis provides us with the beginning, the origins of this grand narrative of Scripture, this grand revelation of God's faithfulness as it recounts God's faithfulness over and over and over again in the lives of the patriarchs. But Moses has a very specific purpose when he begins in verses 1 and 2. Moses introduces us to the God who creates. Verses 1 and 2, the God who creates. Martin Luther reminds us of Genesis opening chapters that they are certainly the foundation of the whole of Scripture. That God creates In Genesis 1, it begins with the the phrase, in the beginning, God, and it reminds us that everything in life starts with God. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It starts with God, and so Genesis sets the stage for everything else that's going to follow in verses 1 and 2 by saying, in the beginning, God created. And in that phrase, we're introduced to Elohim. It's a powerful name, but it's a plural noun, so we're already introduced to the one God who is many persons through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as we understand through the rest of Scripture. Elohim is a plural noun that is always followed by a single verb, so it says this, God created Elohim. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is strong enough to create with just a word by speaking it into existence. He alone is the one who has that kind of strength and power, just in his being. And we see the Trinity present, the God who is creating, his spirit hovering over the chaos waters, as it would be understood in the original Hebrew. I would highly recommend uh, the Bible project on ancient cosmologies here. There's a ton that we're not going to get into. I think they did six different podcasts that were about an hour long on ancient cosmologies. They're fascinating. They're interesting, but they speak to something. 
Ultimately, Moses' purpose was this, that there is one God who is far above all other lowercase g gods of this earth. There is one God. Because Moses is actually speaking to and creating a contrast to other ancient cosmologies that would come out of Egypt, that would come out of Babylon and Persia. So we've seen God the Father who's creating. We've seen the Holy Spirit who is hovering above these chaos waters and working in creation, speaking things into existence, as Hebrew says, that He is creating out of nothing. In theological terms, that is ex nihilo. God is creating out of nothing, as Hebrews affirms. He's speaking things into existence, and as we'll see toward the end of our message today as it relates that we see Christ in this message as well. All three persons of the Trinity, this one God who is there before creation even begins because he is the one who speaks things into existence. That's what verses 1 and 2 summarize for us in the book of Genesis. I think it's going to be an exciting series. What do you think? The God who creates. Let's look next. Verses 3 through 14 introduce us to the God who forms. Verses 3 through 14 capture God's preparation of the earth to be filled. In other words, there is a forming and a filling that happen in this chapter. There is the forming of the earth, day one with day and night, day two with water and sky, day three with land and vegetation. Vegetation. God is forming. He is putting the, the cosmic structures in place to support his filling of the earth that we see next in verses Uh, excuse me, in the days four through six with the lights and the luminaries, with the birds and the fish, with day six, animals and humans. And then we're gonna finally see today that he is the God who finishes because on day seven, God rests. So we have the God who forms, the God who fills, and the God who finishes. Verses three through 14 capture the preparation of God on the earth to be filled as he is forming creation. The earth will be ready for an animated, mobile life as he fills the earth in these next verses. But let's read verses 3 through 14 together. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let the water, let's separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, separated the waters that were there under the expanse from the waters that were there above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Do you notice a pattern that's beginning here? And God said... Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God said that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed and according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And here we see God who is forming his creation. Here's where there's an encouragement for us today. What is the chaos in your life right now? I have this. 
I have chaotic moments in life. Yesterday, Stephanie and I celebrated 23 years of marriage. That's not the chaos I'm facing. <laughs> Just to be clear. <clears throat> but we talked about, at our anniversary dinner on Friday night, we talked about this. What is similar to what we expected when we were first getting married and what is different than what we expected? And can I say that the list of what was similar to what we expected was very small. Life is chaotic, isn't it? Life goes differently than we expect. But there is a God who, as we sing in some of our worship songs, who brings that chaos into order. He forms and he shapes and he molds in a very specific way. He gives us the instruction for that molding for our lives as individuals through his word. But he brings chaos into order. And here at the, at the beginning of creation, we see the spirit hovering over chaotic waters and doing what? Bringing form to them. Bringing form to them. So God speaks things into existence. We see the unequivocal power of God's word. I don't think that actually was a word I just said. I spoke it into existence. Thank you, Eddie. And this is why I'm not God. Your daily reminder. We see the power of God that is unequaled in creation. How about that? That's better. That felt better. God's power and speaking things into existence is unequaled in this earth. With just a word, chaos is brought to order. With just a word, that which was nothing becomes mass and it becomes something. God's word is powerful to us as his people. We should take it very seriously. We're going to see that again at the close of our passage. But God's creation is also good. What he forms, what he gives outline and shape to, what he brings out of chaos into forming, he does so. And he says, that's good. My creation is good. And what does he form here? He forms day and night. He forms water. He forms sky and land and vegetation. And as I've been preparing over these last months for this series, I thought about my sister-in-law, Angela, she is an artist. She graduated from University of Florida with a degree in sculpture. And in my home is some of her work. It's some of our favorite art pieces in our home. And I thought I'd bring in a couple today just to help us understand this idea of forming. So we have one here. This is a, uh, a cutting board, or my favorite use for it is charcuterie board. I don't know how to spell charcuterie, but I know how to say it because it means there's food on it. Not just to be cut, but for me to be able to eat. And we have this bowl here that it, she, was, uh, she threw this and sent it into a kiln and, and did the right kind of application to it. So this is actually something that we can use for eating out of. Not all pottery can be used in that way. You have to, you have to treat it in just the right way. And so functionally, her sculpture degree has really helped make me the man that I am today through eating. That's not the part I'm grateful for. You know... Angela had to bring form to raw materials. I don't know how many of you do woodworking. I do not because I couldn't do this with multiple pieces of wood. She brings these pieces of wood out of chaos, which is what we see in trees, and she brings shape and purpose to them. She forms them in a unique way. Now here's where I'm reminded that creativity and arts, they are a part of the reflection of the character of God. But here's where our reflection of the character of God ends. We fill these with different things. 
They were certainly designed for a purpose, but there are times that this is used as a cutting board. There are times that this is used as a cake stand. There are times that this is used as a charcuterie board. It has many purposes in our room. There are times it's just the thing that leans up, and when it falls down, it scares us all in the kitchen. Maybe you've had that experience, but there is a forming to this, but what it is filled with may be different things. The same thing with this. If you've been to our home at any time, you may have seen this bowl before. It may have been filled with grits or Skittles, right? There's a, there's a number of things that can go into this bowl. So Angela brings form to it, but in terms of what it is filled with, we make that choice. Here's the thing. God as creator The one who forms is also the one who fills with a very specific purpose. And we're going to see that in in the rest of the creation narrative here in in chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. That God is the one who brings form, but he says, I have a very specific function to fill that with. This week we're going to look at creation broadly. We're going to look at, at the things that God has created broadly. And next week we're going to spend a little bit more time, because I think it's necessary to, on human beings as image bearers. What we have been formed and filled specifically to do. But today let's think about this. I think it's wonderful that those who are creative in our church. I mean, look, they, they even did some here on the stage today. They brought new form in a very functional way to our stage as some things had to be reset. Our, our serving crews here in the church were very busy this week kind of taking a rentals chaos that was here during the week and bringing it back to order that you might have seats to be able to sit in. This is a way that we reflect as image bearers. We reflect the image of God through creativity and even the ways that we serve by bringing form and function to certain things. But ultimately, it is God who brings form out of chaos. He is the God who forms. Verses 14 through 31 in Genesis 1, we're going to look at these in just a moment. We, re- we realize that he alone is the God who fills. So we've seen the God who creates, we've seen the God who forms, and now we see the God who fills. Although the earth was without form and void, as we see in Genesis 1-2, God forms the earth through days 1 through 3, and then he fills the earth through days four through six. And here begins the remedy for the earth being without form. Here begins the remedy for the earth being void, as we see at the beginning of Genesis. Let's look at verses 14 through 31 together. Genesis 1, 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening There was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and all over the earth, over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Thank you, God, for that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food, and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Now we're going to look more at our uniqueness as image bearers next Sunday because God blesses humans uniquely. The apex of this chapter is found in the creation of humanity. It's the most verses that are dedicated to this story of creation. But let's remember that we are being introduced to the God who fills the earth and continues to fill the earth through this creation mandate to to both his creation and animals and people when he says be fruitful and multiply, the vegetation as well. Be fruitful and multiply. God is continuing to create through us even today. But he fills the sky with lights. He fills the air with birds. He fills the sea with fish. He fills the land with animals. And then he creates humans and says, have dominion. Let these other things be subject to you. You know, if I think back to this illustration of this board and this bowl, Angela brought form, but she did not bring filling. That's where we're limited as as created as image bearers, isn't it? We are not gods walking around the earth. Thank God we're not gods walking around the earth. It would be scary to think about the things that we might attempt to create because I see the news. I see the things that we already try to create. Thank God he is the one who not only forms, but he alone can fill rightly. But here is the call for us. Steward that creation well. Steward that creation well. As it relates to the sky, as it relates to the sea, as it relates to the land, as it relates to me as a being, steward the creation of God well. That's where we can continue to be image bearers. See, Jeremiah 18 gives us a prophetic picture of a potter and clay. Clay that has become spoiled in the making process but has been promised redemption. 
As we move into the weeks ahead, we'll see our own created purpose in Genesis 2. We'll see the ruin that comes through the fall in Genesis 3. But there is redemption promised in the midst of ruin. Even as Adam and Eve are receiving the curse of the fall, there is promised redemption. And we begin to see this covenant-making and covenant-keeping God come through in the clearest, highest definition of Scripture. There's repetition of words and phrases here. Isaiah 45 speaks as, as a clay that says, will you speak back to the potter and say, why is it that you've made me this way? And I understand that it may, it may seem offensive to be compared to a bowl, but here is what the actual comparison is. We are not sovereign over our own lives. As much as we may try to act like it, we are not sovereign. We need to be filled. And here's my concern pastorally for us as a church. Fill with the right things. Formed by the right things. Why? So that God receives the glory. Because He is the one who has created us. Lastly, we see this morning that He is the God who finishes We see the God who creates, the God who forms, the God who fills, and lastly, the God who finishes. Let's look at Genesis 1, excuse me, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 together. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Here we see the second blessing in creation. He blesses humans uniquely and he blesses this day uniquely. We count Sunday as the seventh day that we might enter into rest. Some would say that set apart time is his final act of creation. That his final act of creation is that he creates rest for his creation. He creates rest see when God finished his work Genesis 2 tells us he rested on the seventh day from all of his work he didn't rest because he was tired he didn't think whoa that was that was a heavier lift than I expected he didn't rest because he was tired he rested to enjoy the work of his hands he rested to enjoy the world that he had created. See, in creation, the pattern was work and then rest. In the gospel, the pattern is rest and then work. In the gospel, the pattern is rest and then work. And you may say, Chris, where do you see that? Well, let me introduce you to Christ. Let me show you where the third person of the Trinity is present here. Jesus Christ's work is finished. We believe that. We celebrate that when we celebrate communion together. John 1 reveals Christ as the Word become flesh. We've already seen that God creates out of the power of His Word. And the Word that was present at the beginning, the one who spoke things out of nothing... The one who spoke form into being, the one who spoke filling into being, that same word became flesh in Jesus Christ. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory through the cross. 
That's the glory as the only Son from the Father. The one who is, as John 1.14 says, is full. His filling is this, grace and truth. The book of Genesis is about the grace of God. But the Word that was active in creation is revealed as a person for us. A Savior, Christ the Lord. He becomes the creation that He made. He takes on the form of flesh and blood in redemption to come and to save us. In Christ, rest is fulfilled. In creation, the pattern is work and then rest. In the gospel, the pattern is rest and then get to work. Rest is fulfilled so that in Hebrews 4.9 it would say this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus is the one who offers the key for us to enter into that rest. Jesus is the one who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. We see that in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He is the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' work was finished, and then he sat down. What does sitting down say? It's finished. I'm going to enjoy the work of my creation and redemption. That's good news for us today. Consider a passage from Ephesians and how we see that God is still forming and filling through his completed work. Ephesians 1.19 says this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his, that is Jesus, power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, far above all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Oh, this line, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth and throughout the New Testament where Paul continually says this, be filled. God is still filling and forming his creation through us. And here's the amazing truth of the gospel. Christ worked and now rests. So we begin our relationship with Jesus as our Savior by resting in his finished work. Then, our work of obedience flows from the security of our resting in relationship, that we are now sons and daughters of God, restored to our Creator through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's my question for you today. If you've never submitted to His Lordship, will you bring your emptiness? Will you bring your chaos or the forms that you've tried to fill? Will you bring those to Jesus Christ that He would shape them and mold them? Are you empty today? Are you in need of God's forgiveness and righteousness? Then here's the call. Come to him. His fullness will become yours with just a word. It's really that simple in receiving. And yet we know its application and its implication for our lives is so broad and far-reaching to every moment of every day but if you're here today 
Would you bring your emptiness to him that you may be filled, that his fullness will become yours with just a word? I'd like to close with just a, what I hope is a helpful pastoral consideration. There's something that we're introduced here in Genesis chapter 1 that I think is very practical for things that we are walking through in the world today. And that is God's sovereign rule over his creation. Often we'll talk about the sovereignty of God as it relates to our salvation, but we need to be reminded as his followers that he is sovereign over his own creation. God did not spin his creation up and then just kind of step back and rest in a way that says he is not intimately involved in the details of our lives. If I get quieter and slower paced here, it's, it's an attempt to care for you as a church. Would you bear with me just as a moment? as I share some things that I believe the Lord has laid on my heart for us as a church today. See, not only did God create all things, but he is in charge of all things. The Psalms say this many times over, that God is on his throne, ruling over his creation. Back in Genesis, we see that he is in charge of his creation because he had the authority to pronounce it as good, as we see throughout Genesis 1. But he then entrusts the care of his creation to Adam and Eve. As their offspring, he entrusts the care of his creation to us today. He is the king, but he has entrusted the stewardship of his kingdom to us. God is sovereign, and it really simply means this. He reigns over his creation. He even reigns over the things that seem overwhelming to us in the world today. There are so many experts speaking into our lives, generally or directly, it's very important for us not to lose this truth, that God alone is the one who is sovereign. I don't share this to to shame anyone or call some individual or a group of people out. This isn't masks versus barefaced freedom. It's not vax, anti-vax. It's not even a call for people to stop listening to governing authorities or those who have given their careers to studies of events like we're walking through even still today. It seems to me that everyone is learning in very real time and it has very real effects on our everyday lives. Here's what's most important for us as the people of God to keep in mind. God alone is the one who is sovereign. He's the one who is sovereign over creation. The truth of who God is as revealed through his creation, through his gospel, reminds us that the gospel is simple in receiving, but it is so, so complex in its application of his lordship over our lives. His sovereignty doesn't end with his creation. He hasn't spun it into rotation simply to watch from afar. He is also working in his creation through his providence. And so we should understand more than just the, prim- the primary divisive topics and their effects on us as individuals or our families. We should think through beyond the moment, beyond a fearful phrase or a fearful moment. We should actually be thinking about how this affects our witness and our relationships with others. In other words, we're not just listening to one thing and then all of a sudden pivoting everything without thinking, God is sovereign, so how do I respond as a steward 
of His good creation. It gives us a filter to understand the world today. I mention this because I want to caution us as a church. I want to caution us about something that I believe may be revealed today. It's being revealed in us today. And that would be our lowercase g functional gods. One whose word or authority we have placed above gods as sovereign. And I see it affecting relationships. I see it affecting families. And I see it affecting the church in the ways that people kind of talk against one another, even on things that aren't theological, on things that are very practical. And I think there's a right place for healthy discussion to love one another through these types of moments. But can we do that under the umbrella of the truth and the understanding that God is sovereign over His creation? And he works providentially through his creation. Perhaps I can illustrate it this way. And here's where I want to be especially careful. I recently heard testimony of a friend whose wife was talking with someone who was attending her husband's funeral. I want to share this with great care because I know many in our church have lost loved ones recently. This friend was asking some questions about why. And I think that's a common question to ask at a funeral. But the wife shared at her husband's loss, even that if he had not passed from COVID, that God had still numbered her husband's days. So if he hadn't passed from COVID, it may have been something else because God is the sovereign who had numbered her husband's days. What a powerful testimony. It's difficult to hear, isn't it? Because it's one of those truths that kind of, it smacks of so different than the emotion of that moment, doesn't it? And yet it's there not to smack us upside the head in some harmful, harsh way. It is there to bring us into the reality of who God is and His involvement in our lives as sovereign and providential Creator. Here's where I apply that today. Many of you would know that three years ago, I went through a cancer diagnosis. And it is time, just earlier this week, I began a new round of testing to see if it's there. I don't fear that. I don't fear that. It's not because I'm bold or stupid. It's because God is sovereign. I don't know what the testing and the sonogram and the blood work and all of these other things, the oncologist and the endocrinologist, that I, the appointments that I have coming in the weeks ahead. I don't know all the things that they're going to say except that I'm overweight. I know that one. I've heard that one since I was like 10. Next. I don't know all the things that are going to be said in the days ahead, but I know the one who's sovereign over those things. Does that mean that I don't that I don't receive what they're encouraging me to do? Not at all. Does it mean that I don't listen to those things? That I don't take them into consideration? Not at all. But does it mean that I fear the diagnosis? Not at all. Because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign. See, our cry in response to the one who has numbered our days is that he would teach us to do the same thing. Teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
I think it's wise for us, no matter where we fall on the number of controversial, medical, political, relationally divisive issues, to remember this. The reason we're called to submit to God's sovereignty, to grow in a heart of wisdom, is for our witness and for our relationships with others as ones who are believers in Jesus Christ. We are representative of a kingdom that is above all of the other kingdoms of this earth. God is sovereign. So again, our primary focus is not on the divisive news of the day, nor are we unwise in how we live, but we are called to represent a kingdom that is ruled by its own maker. The one who created it, the one who formed it, the one who fills us, the one who finished the work that we might be in right relationship with him. And he shows us how to do that through his word. God is sovereign. He makes claims on us. He calls us to wise stewardship. And he gives us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. So here's my very simple prayer today as we close. May God help us to live well for him in uncertain times. Church, would you stand and let's sing together.